podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, welcome along to a bonus episode of Steve Bloomer's Washing, the independent Derby County podcast. We've caught up with another former Rams hero in this episode, and on this occasion it's the turn of Tommy Smith to relive his favourite memories from his two-year spell at Pride Park. Recruited by George Burley ahead of the 2004-05 season, Smith added much-needed firepower to a forward line which went on to finish fourth in his first year forging dynamic attacking partnerships with the likes of Inigo Idiáquez, Paul Pesquislido and Gregor Zraziak before ultimately falling short in the playoffs. Smith's second season saw him crown Derby's Player of the Year and he scored 20 goals in total for the Rams despite the team's struggles in 05-06. A fan favourite for his goals, particularly his contribution in his first ever East Midlands Derby, there was a certain amount of surprise and disappointment when he eventually left the club in August 2006 after falling out of favour with Billy Davis. Now an estate agent, having retired in 2015, here's what Smith told us about his life in football and in the black and white. Smith Smith switches it, great ball from him. Jeff Kenner going forward. Derby trying to get shirts into the box towards Tommy Smith. Yes, what's chasing down well. Smith inside the area, comes past his man, trying to find the angle. And he's put it in the back of the net from an acute angle. Tommy Smith puts the Rams in front. The chance not to have evaded him, but expertly done by Tommy Smith. Tommy Smith, hello. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Uh, How are you? Absolute pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm doing very well, thank you. Good, good. The obligatory first question, of course, uh, you're in the property business now uh, a few years after retiring so am I right in thinking that you're actually one of those few people who can go into an office at the moment How, how's lockdown three been for been for you in general um yeah we are allowed to still operate so um yeah we've got bodies in the office we, we reduce numbers we've got quite a number of staff working from home on a rotation um, but yeah, in a way, we're quite fortunate, um, and it gets me out of homeschooling my three kids as well. So my wife hates it, but I quite enjoy going into the office at the moment. So long may that continue. That's what I was going to ask. You've got you've got a young family, of course. How's the homeschooling been? You doing like the Joe Wicks PE lessons, all that stuff? Or <laughs> um, we we tried for a little while, but I kind of um, do bits with the kids myself, really, um, and trying to get just trying to moat motivate them half the times the the battle they're uh, 16 13 and 10 so they've got their own minds quite strong-willed um but look it's uh, you just got to adapt to, and they've been great homeschooling's a challenge but we're all trying to adapt as best we can of course so i was just going to ask before we get on to your uh, you know your, your footballing career um as i said you work as, as an estate agent now um in uh, in st albans is that right yeah that's right yeah I mean, do, do the kids know much about your career? Like, do you, do you sort of pull out the YouTube videos from time to time or, or how much do they know about what you did for like 18 years when you were younger? Um, yeah, they do. They do. They, it's a bit of a shame that um, they were probably quite young when I was playing regularly. 
and probably like you say in my heyday um and actually there's a few bits on on youtube not as much as i'd like of my old goals and bits and bobs so it's a struggle to find some of them actually most of them not that there were that many goals but um i did, yeah look it's one of those things you rarely speak to kids i think about those things every now and then it will pop up in conversation but on the whole i'm kind of like a working dad and um out at the office kids are at school so it's pretty much a normal life for us it has been five years since you retired and your last game was against Brent, uh, coming for Brentford sorry, in 2015. What's the thing you've missed the most uh, about football in that time? Do you know what? This is probably the question I get asked the most by friends, family or, or kind of fans that you bump into. Um, and for me, it's it's really quite... You're straight away, I know exactly what it is I miss the most and that is the kind of the training every day you know, keeping fit, healthy and being a footballer, you're so blessed that you get to do what you love every day. So getting up and training was never, never hard work for me. I just loved it. I used to love going in um, and having, well, be, being able to, to kick a football around for your career was fantastic. And I think that's, that's the thing I miss the most, just, just your friends in the dressing room, the banter. Yeah, everything was put on for you, which, you know, we are very spoiled. We, you go in, you got your breakfast there, you got a gym, you go out, you train, you come in, there's lunch there for you, there's physio. So you, you, everything is on a plate. So, um, you know, that that's probably the, the kind of the everyday things are what I miss the most. You mentioned like the friends and the banter in there. Just before you came to Derby, you had uh, a spell at Sunderland for, for I think a season and then a six year spell at Watford. Who was your sort of role model in that early part of your career? God, that's a good question. I think you kind of evolve as you get older. So when I was younger, uh, my dad's a my dad's a Geordie, and all his family are massive Newcastle fans. So I grew up loving both Watford and Newcastle. But that was kind of in my teenage years, was when Newcastle were really flying and had Andy Cole, um, Peter Beardsley, people like that. So before I turned pro, they were probably the players that I looked up to and loved. And then once you kind of turn pro, you, you get figures within the club that you're at that you, you kind of look at and you think, God, you know, they're, they're really good pros. They're brilliant on the pitch and they're the people you want to try and emulate. And yeah, there, there was there's a few stalwarts at Watford that, um, you know, probably the likes of, I guess, someone like Luther Blissett that had been there and played and was a coach at the time. Kenny Jacket, who was my youth team manager and Graham Taylor probably as well were big role models for me. I was just looking back through, you know, the, the different parts of your career, Tommy, and in that in that Watford spell, I saw that you scored for Watford in an FA Cup quarter final, not long after recovering from being in a car accident. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. We had a pretty nasty crash. Me and my um, my wife, well, she was my girlfriend at the time, and it was not long before the FA Cup quarter final against Burnley. I think it was a couple of weeks, but I managed. Uh, thankfully, got away pretty much scot free. Um, a bit lucky, just mainly whiplash and a few cuts and bruises. I managed to to get myself fit just in time for the FA Cup uh, quarter final, which for Watford at that time was was a really big game for us. So yeah, it was uh, it was good that I got back just in time and managed to score in that game as well. So we probably should probably leave it there in terms of uh, car related incidents. And I don't know how much you've followed Derby recently, but uh, it's it's not a it's a bit of a difficult subject for, uh, for some parts of the club. But um, most fans do associate you with you know your career in the English game but there was a um a very brief spell in in Italy wasn't there of a trial with Perugia but it's fair to say you weren't really that keen what what, what went on there then 
It was probably the toughest time in my career. I'd run my course at Watford, really, and, and they'd offered me, um, I was 23, and I'd kind of fallen out of favour with, with the manager at Watford at the time, Ray Lewington. And they'd offered me a new contract, but it was it was a really low kind of a. I felt it was a bit of a detrimental offer. It was one of those offers that I think they knew I wouldn't accept, and they were trying to force me out of the club a little bit. Um, being that I was twenty three and out of contract, I was not eligible for a Bosman move, so it meant I had to go to a tribunal, and therefore it was a bit of an unknown quantity. Nobody knew how much I'd, I'd be worth. Um, so I actually was trialling at various clubs at that point at 23 years old. So I found myself having, I felt a really good, I kind of burst onto the scene. And then at 23, I was, I guess a lot of young players go through that time where you're a bit indifferent and you're struggling maybe a little bit to find a bit of consistency in form. And I was moving around positions and I think it turned out to be the best thing I, I had to do was, was move away from home, Watford had been my hometown club and, I yeah was scratching around to find a club at that point and my agent had a link with Perugia in Italy and I thought you know what let's give it a go and I went out for a couple of weeks but I, yeah I didn't really enjoy it it's it's a very different style of football there was a lot of side to side passing backwards it was very um yeah it was a very different defenders were on you like a rash there no matter where you went they were kind of all over you and it, it just, you never had any space and it was very slow football and it just, I just really didn't enjoy it at all. So yeah, two weeks was long enough for me. So I came back and thankfully managed to actually trialled at Sunland and, and Mick McCarthy there. We got on really well and he, he signed me. So, you know, that was the, the year I had at Sunland just before I came to Derby. I'm just uh, reminded of that uh, that famous Ian Rush quote when he when he tried his hand in Italy and he said, uh, I went to Italy, but it was like being in a different country. <laughs> um, so, um, was it was it the footballing side or what was it um, was it like a, a cultural thing as well or was it mainly like the style of play that, that you, you sort of struggled with out there it was probably a bit of everything to be honest I'd, like I just said Watford was my hometown club and I'd lived at home so suddenly the thought of living in another country the Italians like to speak Italian obviously but they're not great at, at kind of opening their doors to, to speak English. I think they expect you to speak Italian, which is more than fair enough, but it makes it makes things a little bit tougher when your Italian's very limited. So they just trained at different times. It was a very different training schedule. I don't know, it, probably at that time in my career, I probably wasn't quite ready to, to make that leap or to think really properly about playing abroad. Following your various trials, you then obviously signed for Sunderland and, as you said, got on well with Mick McCarthy. But you were only, only there for a year before you joined Derby. What exactly attracted you to, to Derby at that time? It, well, really, actually, a big part of it was Murdo Mackay um, and George Burley together. They, I'd, I'd got an offer of a contract at Sunderland. Um, I'd actually bought a house in Sunderland as well which I ended up only living in for seven days because um, by the time we, we got the chance to move into it, it, the summer had hit us, so the closed season. So I came back home and I never went back to the house because I'd signed at Derby in the meantime. So um, I, had a, I had a contract offer at Sunderland for two years and Derby offered me, to be honest, it was a better contract. Um, I was very reluctant to move because I, I loved my time at Derby and I felt I'd really improved in the year I'd been there. I really, I really enjoyed playing for Mick McCarthy. We'd finished third in that season and lost in the playoff semi-final. So I kind of felt they were building to to be a Premier League club again. It was going to take a lot for me to to not sign, but 
Derby called me down and, and George and, and Murdo and just I was just so impressed by the setup, by the ground, by everything they said that the club were, wanted to do and achieve and the style of football and, and George guaranteed me pretty much that I'd be playing every week and at Sunderland I'd, we had four good strikers at that time and I was playing as a striker and we were rotating a lot and I, I kind of felt I just needed to play every week. I felt my career, I was 24 and I, I needed that and George said, look, you'd be my first choice player, I want to play you a bit wider, play you more as a winger um, in a front three and I, just everything seemed to fit for me at that time. George Burley had like has had quite an interesting career. He's been all over the place, right, with Ipswich and obviously Derby and up to Scotland uh, as well with Hearts, and he's often had a lot of success there. Um, what exactly is he like as a manager, both like on the field, like the uh, at a game, but also in training, and then also like just in and around the club generally. I really enjoyed working with him. I only had that one year with him, unfortunately, but it was it was brilliant. He was he was very much like a a Mick McCarthy-style manager that, very experienced, knew what was required to get results in that league. And I think that's where, for me, still a lot of managers go wrong. They think that the Championship's like no other league and I think you need to have experience in it to understand how to get results and how to be successful. And George, George knew that and he knew the kind of players he needed to fit into that style that would get success. And I really enjoy playing for managers like that, that no nonsense, work hard, train hard, get your head down. And if you play well, you keep your place. And, I, you know, he was he was quite a tough, tough guy. He didn't give you a lot. You didn't see a lot of him through the week. But he had a really good staff membership around him and, and they, they, they pretty much kind of got his methods and thoughts over during the week. And George would come in and out and... Um, very much in that more old-fashioned style manager, maybe not on the training pitch as much, but a bit more of an impact manager and a bit more of a motivator than a, a guy that you see on the training pitch every day trying to hammer down their methods. Is it fair to say that you know that that, that George Burley made uh, made the most of preseason trips and the, and the time between games, just as uh, as you did as players? Yeah, he was certainly one that um, enjoyed the nightlife in Derby and. Um, yeah, we'd often see him vacating a few of the bars around. Um, you know, I, I always, my time at, at Watford and at Sunderland, really, it was that you, you never really socialised with the manager. So it was a bit of an eye-opener that George was, you know, quite, if you saw him, often it would be in an evening somewhere in a bar and, you know, he'd be straight over and having a chat with you. And that took a bit of time for me to get used to. Our first pre-season tour, so I hadn't long signed and, at the end of the tour, we were allowed a night out um, and there was one nightclub in the town that we were in and we, we ended up having a drink in that club one that last night before we came home and lo and behold, George was in there and was buying everyone a drink at the bar and, and that to me was very odd at that time, being a young man and experienced that. Um, I found it strange, but look, he, would, he, was, he was a big character once he'd had a drink and, and was good fun. But uh, yeah, it took a bit of getting used to. A different sort of manager, it's, uh, it's it's fair to say. Well, in terms of on the pitch, that Burley side in, in 2004-2005 were, were certainly easier to watch for, for the fans. And I guess, presumably, it's more enjoyable for you to to play in as well, like playing in a side that likes to, to keep it down, have technically gifted players rather than a side who are like more functional and just sort of built and set up to get results. Yeah, absolutely. As I kind of touched on before, I think George had a real vision on how he wanted his teams to play. And he signed a number of players that year 
that he felt would fit into that formation and that style. A lot of the players, um, you know, were either very well known in the league or he plucked a few from from abroad that slipped straight into the squad and were just fantastic. And yeah, look, I loved it. We had we had we had a real good mixture of young players that had been at the club and come through the the youth team, and some players that had been around like your Michael Johnsons and Ian Taylors, Jeff Kenners that had fantastic experience. Yeah, so it was a real good blend and a, and a real good kind of feel around the club and team spirit. Um, so he, he really nailed all that down. And yeah, we, we, we just clicked and we just pretty much straight away had just, you know, I felt at the time and, and I think you've kind of touched on it, that we had a, we had a fantastic team that, that played a really nice attacking style of football. What did you make of it when you first saw how good Idiarquez was at free kicks? Were, were you surprised that this guy can whip a ball in like the way he could? Yeah, unbelievable. I mean, I, to be honest, I don't think I've played with anybody that strikes a better dead ball than he could. He was he he was scoring free kicks that I I felt on the pitch he was going to cross it, and yet he'd still managed to whip it, and it would end up in the top corner. And you think, well. Yeah, how's he even thought about trying that? Let alone pulling it off. So no, he was he was phenomenal and and a great guy as well off the pitch. You know, really really good good guy. He came to English football and just settled in and and it was like he he played in the championship his whole life. That derby team was a fantastic side that year and it it really came together that season in the the game against Forest where we won three nil at home. Uh, you scored one and you also made one. Um, but how much do you remember of that day? A lot, actually, vivid memories of that because having signed at the club, the first, pretty much the first question is, um, you know, you're looking forward to the Forest game. Can't wait for the fixtures to come out. I wonder, you know, when we'll be playing and wonder if we'll be home first or away first. And have you heard about the rivalry? So everything was geared up for the Forest game as soon as you sign. So... The fact that the first game we played against them was at home, uh, the build-up was incredible. It was a packed state. The the, the atmosphere was electric. And and I think I scored. It was early on in the game. It was probably the first 10 minutes, maybe earlier. So, you know, it just got the whole stadium jumping and and we went on to win 3-0. I think Ian Taylor missed the penalty as well. It was a real thumping. But brilliant. Yeah, I mean, it just... I, I I loved every minute. And I... Still watch that goal from time to time because, um, yeah, lots of fond memories in that day. Can play for Derby by Kennan. Now Biscard. That's oh, a clever exchange with Rasha. Biscard. Idiake. It's Tommy Smith for Derby. It's 1 0 Derby. Idiake simply demanded of Smith that he slid it home. And Tommy Smith, the most watchable and assured player on his day, was not about to err in his finish. I think we were such a new group being put together. Um, yeah, we, who else? There was Mo Cognit, um, Morton Biscard had signed. Marco Reich was there as a bit of a, you know, an enigma, um, but an incredible talent on his day. Just such a mixture of people and personalities and football styles. It took a bit of time, but I think pretty much from the off, you could see in training what a great bunch there were. So I think everyone knew if we could get that onto the pitch on Saturdays, then we kind of knew we'd have a real chance of of being a really formidable team. And, and we managed to do that quite quickly, I felt, really, because of the 
the numbers of players that had come in, it normally takes a bit longer, but we managed to click and a lot of that was just down to, to the types of characters we had in there and, and certainly the leaders in the dressing room that I touched on before. They were they were really good, honest guys and they set such a good example to everybody else to follow that it just kind of naturally happened. As I said before, it, it didn't end well, unfortunately, and, and we lost in the semis to, to the Preston side who would themselves lose in the final. But in that in the second leg of that playoff semi-final, Derby were 2-0 down and we ended up putting Idiarquez and Raziak out, even though neither were really match fit. As, as a player, how aware were you of that at the time? Like, did you think, you know, that they, they don't look right or was it just a case of get on with it? We did. We were aware of it, but at the end of the day, I think it falls down to each player individually to go, look, I'm fit to play and I can do a job today or hold your hands up and say, look, I'm not ready or I'll be on the bench, I can come on, but I think I've only got 20 minutes in me. So, you know, it's hard to, I think that comes down to each individual player to take that responsibility. I, yeah, we were a bit patched up and I felt probably, I, d- I don't know, just Preston seemed to have our number that year. They were very well organised, had a couple of really good players that could change a game. And I just felt we, even going into the game, I always knew it was going to be tough. Um, I think we'd have probably rather any of the other teams in the playoffs as opposed to them, even though we beat them on the last day of the season. I kind of felt that it was always going to be a tough ask to beat them. Do you think it would have been different had Idiaka from Raziak not been lacking match fitness? And and where do you think it, it really went wrong during that, that playoff, uh, that two-legged playoff? Do you know what? I can't really put my finger on it and I can't remember. I know I was bitterly disappointed after the first and second. I think I... I think I was sub at half time. I think in the second league, I had a bit of a falling out with George because it just it, it was just one of those things on the pitch. Because the away leg when we lost, I felt we didn't quite get the tactics right. He kept screaming my name throughout the whole of the first half, and because I was right next to the bench playing on the right hand side, I think at some point I turned around and shouted back at him. Um, I kind of lost my head a little bit and was frustrated, and I think. I can't remember if he brought me off at half-time in the first leg as well, but I know certainly I was subbed off quite early. Um, and I think that was because of my reaction back to him. Um, I just vented my frustration to him. And I think we were getting outplayed through a lot of the first the first leg. So, yeah, it's a real shame. And, and as I said, it was a, a talented side who, who could have gone further, but it wasn't to be. But in spite of that, who were the players that you, you rated highest when, when you played at Derby? And, uh, you know, who, who did you enjoy playing alongside and with most? I think Inigo stood out because just the way he conducted himself and his his kind of his ability on the dead ball situations. But I don't know, he just had the long blonde flowing locks and he just looked great. You know, it was hard not to admire him, I think. And such a nice guy. Um, but I felt I, I got a really good link with, with, with Gregor, um, you know, with Rajak up front. We, we seemed to click really well. And I always knew if I put in a good cross, he'd pretty much be on the end of it. So we, we kind of had a, I think we formed a pretty good relationship quite quickly. Uh, but then, I, you know, Jeff kind of played right back and I felt a lot of the season we, we linked up really well. So I don't know, I, I made so many good friends that, that season that I'm still friendly with now. So it's, you know, it, it was such a, a happy time for me looking back. Probably one of my most enjoyable times of my career with the, with the time I had at Derby. Are you still in touch with any of those players, and then Tommy, are you still uh, is that connection still there? 
Yeah, um, yeah. Th- there's still a few of us that that speak fairly regularly. I mean, Adam Boulder's, you know, probably one of my best friends now that I speak to him regularly. In terms of like personalities, were there any like really big standout personalities? Maybe unusual characters in the in the changing room during those two seasons. It was a real buzzy dressing room. I have to say, we um, the Ashes were on when um, England won the Ashes against Australia. And we hadn't won it for years and years. Cricket kind of took over cricket fever. And we were playing, we had this little um, really thin style cricket bat that we used to have in the dressing room. And we'd made this kind of rough ball out of tape that we just kept wrapping round and round. And we'd play cricket in the dressing room for hours. Hour. We'd, we'd, we'd be there till four or five o'clock at night because we'd, we'd managed to formulate this brilliant game of cricket that worked in the dressing room. Um, so there were loads of players that, that stayed on and played that. I think the big kind of personalities back then were probably, uh, yeah, John Oates and Michael Johnson, probably Ian Taylor as well. They were the two kind of real experienced players that kind of controlled the dressing room back then. But both great guys, but both very loud and enjoyed a good bit of banter and winding people up. I'm just trying to imagine like what, what Raziak and, uh, you know, Udi Arkets would have made of playing cricket in a dressing room with a, a ball made out of tape. I just can't, can't picture that. Who was who was the most handy with your makeshift little bat then? Who who was who would have wanted to be cricketers in that squad? Well, you know, obviously by myself. Um, I don't, it, there was uh, Lee Grant um, saw himself as a good bowler, I remember, but you couldn't bowl over arm. You had to do this kind of flicking action. So it was all spin and the ball would bounce all over the place. It, it, it sounds great. It does sound like a really genuinely tightly knit dressing room, but... Away from the pitch, things were far from rosy, of course. How aware were you as players of the, the strained relationship that existed between Murdo Mackay and George Burley that season? Yeah, as the season went on, we got more and more aware of it. It was becoming more obvious that they didn't like each other and that there was a real issue off the pitch at board level. Um, again, you know, being 24 at the time, I probably didn't have the experience to realise what impact that was going to end up having I'm sure the older players at the time probably knew it was going to come to a head at some point but for me at the time I probably didn't look into it too much and probably thought you know what I'm just here enjoying my football and I hope this carries on till next season but unfortunately it it did come to a head and um, it was sad times really um, I think everyone at that time was was gutted to see to see George go because he, he was very well liked and, and we kind of knew it was the end of a bit of an era at that point. Hi, I'm Dean Sturridge. Hi, I'm Paul Pesky-Solido. Hi, I'm Curtis Davis and you're listening to Steve Bloomer's Washing. Our podcast partners at Derby Brewing Company can no longer do takeout beer from any of their venues. However, they can do deliveries. So if you can't come to them, then they will come to you. They're offering free delivery on beer within a three-mile radius of the hole in the wall in Mickleover, but they also cover Etwall and Hilton. Every Wednesday, Friday and Saturday, they'll deliver orders to your home from 5pm. Simply order from the Derby Brewing app, via the hole in the wall Facebook page or over the phone. Cheers. Here's Kenner charging forward on the edge of the area. Jeff Kenner going into the area. Has he been brought down? Here's Pesky Salino now. Tommy Smith inside the area. 2-0 to the Rams. That could seal the place in the playoffs. What a great movie it was. It was a dramatic change in fortunes the following season with uh, Burley going out and Phil Brown coming in. What were your first impressions of, of Phil Brown? Um, he just changed so much. He he had so many ideas. Um, and I think, I mean, I, 
I liked him initially, certainly. I, I He was so enthusiastic. He's a likeable character, bubbly, completely the opposite end to George, was around all the time. But we had such a, a tight-knit squad that had enjoyed the season before so much that he came in and tried to change so much so quickly. And a lot of it was obviously stuff he'd learned under Sam Allardyce at Bolton. So that was a very, very different style of football to what we were playing. And I think the two just didn't work. And it was pretty evident straight away that a lot of what he was asking and trying to do was we as a squad weren't used to that and we weren't really enjoying the match day, you know, and what he was asking us to do in it. Yeah, it just didn't work pretty much fairly quickly from the start. It was always going to be a struggle, I felt. But, you know, he's he was a good guy. And he's he's a guy that he's a likeable character. So I don't think it was uh, down to him as a person, but just probably more his methods that he introduced. I think looking back, that that, that sounds absolutely bang on. But I think it, it, it seems clear that, that Brown, just like George Burley, like did have the, you know, the, the rug pulled under him by the powers that be above him, like, you know, he was undermined a bit by the board and having to sell certain players. Uh, that's what it seemed like to us anyway. And it was his first job out of management, wasn't it? I guess maybe he was just so keen to, to to make an impression. But it seems like he didn't always make the best decisions himself. Uh, that There's one story that's going around that he did announce to, to you and the squad at one point that he'd sold Marcus Tuggay because he quote wasn't loyal do you remember that particular incident it sounded bizarre I do remember that yeah it it was bizarre but again it was at that point it was kind of pandemonium there was all things happening and I think we'd lost a lot of respect or maybe not respect at that time but I think we kind of felt anything could happen um, because of what happened with George and the rumours about why he left and we all knew the rumours weren't true but we all knew they'd started somewhere and, you know, straight away it just leaves such a, a cloud over the club that you kind of feel that the manager hasn't got full control. And we kind of knew that when um, with Phil Brown when he came in, that obviously he was there more as a head coach rather than a proper manager for the club. And yeah, that, that, that particular incident was rather embarrassing for him. Um, and one that, yeah, yeah, you can't you can't forget moments like that. There were some some interesting uh, personnel choices as well, and I'm, I'm sure you remember. What what did you make of it when you're lining up in in uh, in that derby team in 0506, and two of your teammates include 42 year old Kevin Paul in goal and 37 year old Dean Holsworth up front? How how weird was that for you? <laughs> yeah, look again, that wasn't. I think if you ask Phil now what his thoughts are on that, he'd probably regret doing what he did. I mean, for me, it wasn't great because. You know, you could see these guys were not quite, well, not quite, they were nowhere near fit enough and capable enough to to be at that level. And he, Phil would still revert back to them and say how brilliant they were at training. And, you know, we'd all be thinking, really, well, we can clearly see they're struggling and they can't breathe. And, you know, Kevin Paul would be letting in goals as much as he's doing great for a guy of his age. But you kind of think... He had these blinkers on. I mean, one moment stands out for me, and I'm pretty sure it's Colchester away. We were losing, and we got a penalty late on, and Dean Holdsworth had just been subbed on. And I was on penalties, and he came over and tried to grab the ball off me to take the penalty. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm going to take it. I said, no, you're not. I said, I'm on penalties. I'm taking it. And he was, he was trying to wrench the ball out of my hands um, to take the penalty. 
And I, I remember thinking, absolutely fuming, like, no, it's my, it's my penalty. I'm on them. Uh, but it kind of just highlighted what was going on. It was things weren't quite right at, at that time for the staff and the members. I think they were struggling and, and you could kind of that filter through for the players. We kind of knew that. But then I guess after that, it was, you know, back to positivity again when, when Brown left and, and Terry Wesley came in. Like, how uh, how do you look back on, on the second half of that season? Because it was a poor season, but you were player of the year yourself. So mixed emotions, I guess. Terry was a great guy, really good coach, and just took it back to how it kind of should be. Just training sessions, enjoyable. Um, Phil Brown had introduced this. I think he called it the thousand meter club and he expected you to sprint a thousand meters every match day. And there was a, he introduced this camera that would follow each player around and, and you'd get exactly how far you'd run each game. And then he'd put it up on the wall after every game um, and tell you how far you'd run and would expect you to hit certain points. And, you know, and he would rather you, it seemed to us players, he'd Phil would be happier if you hit a thousand sprints in a game or sorry, a thousand metres in sprints, high intensity runs, as he called it, than play well and, and, and win the match. And it was it was quite tiresome. And I think the players didn't want to be managed in that way. Um, so it was great when Terry came in because he was like, right, we'll forget all that, we'll scrap that, let's go back to enjoying it, playing proper football, working on the training pitch and trying to put that into a match day. So... Uh, it was refreshing and, and that showed with the results in the end and the way the team played. As a fan, it was a very sort of contrasting sort of season, but um, player of the season, obviously in 2005 and six, having been second in 2004 and five. But following on to the 2006-07 season, how much of a shock was it that Billy Davis decided to let you go quite early on in that season? Yeah, it wasn't a surprise really, unfortunately. it was There was a lot going on probably that wasn't being seen outside the club. So from my point of view, I had a year left on my contract when Billy came in and I'd had two really good seasons. I loved it at Derby. I felt at home. I had a house. I just had my first daughter. You know, I I loved the city, loved the fans, loved the stadium. You know, it felt like home. And Billy came in and he... He said he wanted me to sign a new contract. So I said, great. Um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd love love to talk about that. And he said, okay, great. Well, he just he just played a lot of games with me. And I felt I didn't really understand what he wanted me to do because he kept saying, I'm going to offer it to you, but I want you to show me that you want it and I want you to tell me that you want it. And, and we kind of went round and round in circles. And he kept calling me in his office and we'd have these talks and I'd be really confused when I left because... He'd say how much he wanted me to stay and I'd say, great, you know, I'm really keen, look forward to receiving a contract offer. And I knew there was clubs interested. And, um, you know, as you do, I, I was kind of saying, well, look, if you don't want me to stay, then tell me because I think there's other clubs out there that are offering at the moment. And it seemed to me he was quite happy for me to leave. That was the impression I got from him. He never once said to me, I want you to stay, here's my contract offer. Um, and you know, and that's kind of how what ended up happening in the end. And to be honest, I wasn't. I felt even when I left, I felt he was trying to manipulate me to go to a club that he wanted me to go to, so that he could get a player in return. And yeah, I I wasn't. I, to be honest, we we didn't get on, and I'm not a massive fan of Billy Davis. I didn't I didn't enjoy my time with him. I felt you know, and I'll, I'll always be very honest. I just felt he. 
had his own ideas but wasn't very honest with me with what he wanted from me so you know I was very sad to leave but at the same time I didn't really want to play for him unfortunately even when you telling that story I don't know what he meant either (laughs) this is very that's very strange I'm just trying to figure out so he did want you to stay but he also wanted you to tell him how much he wanted to stay and in the end he did offer you something but you still ended up getting sold. It just sounded like it sounded like he didn't really handle that situation as well as he could have done. No, it was really every time he called me in his office, he'd have another member of staff stood behind him, uh, David Kelly, I think. Ned, Ned Kelly, yeah. Ned Kelly, yeah, yeah. Even now, I can't put my finger on it. It he it was like he wanted me to beg for a contract, and that's kind of how I felt. <clears throat> um, so we'd kind of have this really strange conversation where nothing would be said. Yet I'd be in there for half an hour, and we would talk about how much I love the club and I've really enjoyed my time here and I'd love to stay, but we, I don't know. He, he kept saying, great. Yeah. We'll, we, we want you to stay. And it, but they never offered me anything. Um, so I never got a contract offer and yet he knew full well, there, there were a number of clubs that were kind of bidding for me. And it just felt to me, it was kind of like, well, if he's not actually going to offer me anything officially, then if he's just going to keep saying, yeah, we're going to offer you something, but we're quite happy for you to to not sign and, and see where it goes. It just kind of felt like he didn't want me to stay, but I never quite understood why. You know, I felt I'd, I'd done well for a couple of years and I was really keen to stay, but sadly it just, maybe I wasn't in his plans. I'm not sure. Yeah, well, it was a, de- it was a desperate shame that the way it all ended, I've got, I've got to be honest. But after that, you ended up in the Premier League anyway, of course, back at Watford. And then there were... Uh, spells at Cardiff um, and Portsmouth and QPR and uh, and Brentford as well. More than 500 games in an 18-year career. What were the highlights? What do you think of when you relive your, your career and tell your kids about it? Which I know you say you don't, I, but I still think you do. <laughs> I try to. Uh, they don't listen to me anymore. But um, I don't know. It's so many highlights. Um, I just count myself very, very fortunate to have had such a such a good career really and I'm, I'm kind of blessed in a lot of ways that I didn't have many injuries so I managed to get over 500 games um, played for some fantastic clubs and some brilliant managers. The two FA Cup semi-finals with Watford do you look back on those fondly because I know that you know you, you, you lost them both but you did mm. did you score in one or score in two like how do you reflect on on those because they're you know they're quite uh, again sort of up and down experiences for you personally. Yeah Great journeys and good memories. Um, it would have been nice to have won an FA Cup, but sadly that didn't happen. I lost in four championship playoff semi-finals as well, so never made it to a final. So, yeah, lots of kind of moments that I look back on and go, what might have been, and that would have been great. But, um, yeah, I got promoted three times. So, you know, it, it offsets kind of the, the disappointment. You've played over 500 games in an 18-year uh, career. Are there any players who have been particularly impressive that you've played against or played with? And why have they been so, such talented players? I've always said the one, for me, the standout person that I always found the toughest to play against was Jonathan Woodgate. He was, for me, the best centre-half I played against. And I played against him a fair bit, being that we're at similar ages. We're in the under-21s squad together for England and um, I got to see him on the training pitch and play against him regularly, kind of 1v1 bits that you do in training. And, and for me, he he was just exceptional. Um, I think if it wasn't for the injuries he had, 
he would have gone on to, you know, he had a great career, but I think it would have really been one of the, the all-time greats if, if he'd have had a full career. And then playing with, again, fortunate to have played with some wonderful players with incredible talents, but um, probably one person is pro- probably a Delta Rat. That one season at QPR that I played with, with him, um, I think he got 18 goals and 16 assists that season when, when QPR won the league. And, and that, as a whole contribution for that season, I'll never forget. He scored some incredible goals. Didn't train throughout the whole season. I think he's one of the only players I've played with that probably put on weight throughout the season because he did less and less work throughout. Um, he, but just an incredible talent. Um, so he's probably the one player that I would say stood out for me as, as just as a footballer, just pure talent was incredible. Did you play with him the season that he uh, he got subbed off and he, he wandered out the ground and and turned up at a bus stop? Yeah, that Fulham away. Yeah, I played I played in that game. Yeah, um, but that summed him up. That wasn't we played Hull away um, the year we got promoted for QPR and. He was having an absolute shocker, and after about twenty minutes, he walked to the side and asked to be subbed off. And uh, and Neil Warnock said, "No, I'm not bringing you off." So he literally just stood by the sideline for the whole of the first half and did not move. Just <laughs> he, he got the ball every now and then, won the round, you know. And the players wanted to rip his head off in the dressing room at half time. And Neil Warnock had to say, whoever touches him is going to get fined a week's wages. No one go near him. <laughs> no way. Yeah. That's amazing. And Neil Warnock had to go into the showers and kind of talk him and say, please come, please play the second half. We need you. We need you to play. <laughs> um, but I think that's why he did so well, because he needed a manager that kind of would look past all of that and um, just kind of allow him to be who he wanted to be on the pitch. And there aren't too many managers that would allow that to happen. But Neil Warnock was incredible with him and got the best out of him. Just lastly, Tommy, um, as, as we said before, you, you, you're in property now. You um, uh, you founded uh, or, or you run an estate agent with your brother, Jack, who had a professional career as well. Did, did you ever consider staying in the game, like in coaching or punditry or anything? Or was that particular industry one that you always wanted to get into? Um, that was never an industry I wanted to get into really. It was, um, my dad's a charter survey. So we, I've always had links to property and, um, always had a few buy to let properties. And, um, I think just growing up in a house with a man who's a qualified surveyor, it was always in the conversation. I'd have loved to have stayed in football. Um, I just think when I retired, I was ready for a fresh start. Wanted to do something different for a little while, but I do. I I love football, and I'd I'd love to be back in it, but I just um, not as a manager, not as an agent. <laughs> so it's hard to kind of know. There's 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 limited options then at that point. I'm I'm imagining. I'm assuming without checking that you must have played against Wayne Rooney at some stage in your uh, in your career. When you did play against him, granted he was much much younger at the time, but. Did you sort of think to yourself that that the way he read the game and and his uh, you know his football brain would would lead him to be a manager? How do you feel personally about the prospects of, of Rooney being a, a full time football manager? For me, it's brilliant. I think I love to see players putting themselves out there and and um, and testing themselves in management. As players, we've got so much to offer. Um, learning from all the different managers, particularly say for someone like Wayne who. 
you know, you look at the managers he's worked under and, and what he's learned and he's a bright lad. And if you can have your own personality taking on what you've learned from the brilliant managers and players he's worked with and under, he can't not be a success, I don't think, as a manager. Likewise with Gerard and Lampard. And, you know, when you're, you're that good as a player and you've got that talent, then I can't, I think he'll be a fantastic manager. I really do. Tommy, look, it's been so great to hear from you to, to catch up after, uh, after after 15 years. Can't yeah. believe it's that long. Uh, yeah. You're still remembered very fondly by Derby County's fans, even all this time later. Uh, tr- trust me when I say that. So, uh, so Tommy Smith, thanks for the goals. Uh, thanks for the memories. And uh, thanks for joining us. Oh, no, an absolute pleasure. And can I quickly say before I go, I came, I got invited back to do um, a match day. It must have been two, two years ago, I think. And just to come up to one of the suites and we did a bit of uh, question and answer and um, I went and sat out in the stand and the reception I got from, from the fans around me was just fantastic and my kids couldn't believe it um, because it had been, you know, more than a decade since I've been been back at the club, but they remembered me and picked me out in the crowd. So, you know, that to me was just incredible. But yeah, it just shows what brilliant fans the Derby fans are and, you know, I've got huge, huge fondness for the club and so have my kids now so my son whenever I ask him and he's like dad can we go back to Derby again um so yeah I just it's a great club and I think you know it gets you hooked